I still see a, a, a economy and a labor market that are going to strengthen much faster than what we saw during the, the great financial crisis, which would help propel this secular bull market. Hello and welcome to this Wealth Track podcast. I'm Consuelo Mack. Why do investors continue to pull money out of stocks and put it into bonds? Interest rates are at record lows and the stock market is at or near record highs. Is that the problem? Could it be the pandemic? The economy? Is investor aversion to stocks justified by the facts? Joining us to clear up this conundrum is Jeff Schulze, the investment strategist at ClearBridge Investments, a global investment manager overseeing nearly $160 billion in assets. Jeff, welcome. Thanks, Consuelo. Glad to be on the program. So, Jeff, let's talk about this paradox that we have an economic recovery and yet investors are still pulling money out of stocks and putting it into bonds. Do the economic facts justify this behavior? Well, no, they don't, actually. We've uh, gone through a recovery and quite a robust recovery. And against consensus expectations, there's actually been a V-shaped recovery that we've seen from the bottoms of March and through to where we currently stand today. And the reason why I have confidence in the recovery that we've seen is because of the recovery dashboard that we put out at ClearBridge. It's a group of nine indicators that have done an excellent job of foreshadowing a durable economic and market recovery. It's a reverse stoplight analogy. So our goal is to go from a recessionary red to a yellow improvement, ultimately to a green expansion. And there's really three things that are necessary for that durable recovery. You need to see broad-based confidence. So you need to see confidence with consumers, businesses, and investors. Then you need to see some economic green shoots. We want to see uh, positive statistics out of housing starts, initial jobless claims. We want to see them starting to come down. And we want to see strength out of the Philly Fed index. Then lastly, we want to see financial conditions start to ease. So we want to see credit spreads come in. We want to see an accommodative Fed policy. And then lastly, we want to see financial conditions starting to loosen broadly. And as of the end of September, um, we have seven green, one red, and one yellow signal. But more importantly, it's a green expansionary signal. And, and we've had this green expansionary signal since June, advocating to our client base to take more risk because the worst was likely over on the economic front. So let's talk about the outlier, which is investment sentiment, and uh, that is red. So how significant is that? And and why do you think uh, investor sentiment uh, is does not share the same kind of confidence that consumer confidence and business confidence does. Yeah, with investor sentiment, it's actually more of a contra indicator. And what I mean by that is we're looking for the point of capitulation with investors where there's more bears than bulls. So we monitor two investor sentiment surveys. First is the American Association of Individual Investor Survey, better known as the AAII, which focuses more on the retail community. And then we look at the Investors Intelligence Survey or the II survey that focuses more on the institutional markets. And obviously, when there's an abundance of negativity and you're at that point of capitulation, you usually see a durable market bottom. Um, so given how quick this recession played out and how quickly markets bottomed, you never got to that point where there were more bears than bulls. So with this particular indicator, it's likely going to be red for the remainder of this recovery. Um, but if you look at the other confidence measures, consumer confidence, for example, uh, we like to look at the conference board survey. And that latest print in September was up to 101.8. And the more forward-looking expectations component of that is at 104. And 
These numbers are not what you typically see at the very beginning of an economic expansion. These are numbers that you typically see in the middle or late part of an economic cycle. So this gives me the confidence to say that, you know, you're going to see consumers continue to spend even if we don't get any fiscal stimulus here in the fourth quarter. And obviously, if you saw the retail sales print this morning at positive 1.9%, it blew out consensus expectations. And I, and I think it's because of the confidence you're seeing with consumers. Jobless claims are yellow. So how worrisome is that? And of course, consumer confidence is very much tied to the outlook for jobs. It is a little jobs. bit worrisome. If there's a fly in the ointment of this entire recovery, I, I would say it's initial jobless claims. Um, and when we think about the dashboard itself and we make the change in colors, I'd say it's a mixture of art and science. And what I mean by that is about 95% of the indicator changes are based on thresholds that we've predetermined. But there is sometimes where our collective judgment or expertise needs to come in and maybe hold an indicator signal back from moving forward to, say, a green. And so with initial jobless claims, what we're really looking for is a drop of claims coming down 20% off of the peak. Now, the peak claims during the COVID-19 crisis was 6.9 million. And the latest initial jobless claims weekly print that we got was 898,000. So claims have technically come down about 85%. But if you look at pre-COVID, you know, before this crisis hit U.S. shores, the weekly jobless claims record that we saw was back in 1982 at 695,000. So we're still 200,000 above the previous record in weekly jobless claims. And mind you, this is five months after the economy has reopened. So this is indicating to me that maybe you know there's some double counting or there's some issues with this particular indicator, given just the sheer magnitude of the layoffs that we've seen. But it also indicates that even though you are seeing strong economic prints uh, across a myriad of different indicators, that there is still broad-based weakness on Main Street and, and people are still losing their jobs this late into the recovery. So this is one indicator that I'm watching very closely and, and hopefully it continues to drop as we move through the fourth quarter. Right. You also have a recession dashboard, <laughs> which which has a, a very good track record. Uh, and I think you told me that it had registered uh, basically all seven recessions since the 1960s, except for one. And that was uh, early in this uh, recession dashboards history. So what is that signaling now? Yeah. So the recession dashboard, it's, it's a different dashboard. Instead of nine variables, it's, it's 12 variables. There's three overlapping signals, but there are nine uh, unique signals with the recession dashboard. But that has climbed from, you know, obviously as red as that dashboard has ever been when we shut down the U.S. economy uh, back to a green signal at the moment. So it's uh, it's signaling that similar to what we see in the recovery dashboard, but things are getting better with the U.S. economy. So here we are. So Clearbridge basically is convinced and I've. I, I, you can tell me whether that is the appropriate word to use, that the economy has started a new economic expansion. Is, is that accurate? That is accurate. Yeah, I think, you know, the, the gap between okay. financial markets and the economy, it was a lot larger in the beginning part of the summer, but that gap has closed considerably um, with the economic data that we've seen since uh, since July, really. So how are you characterizing the stock market? at this point? I think the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism and it's looking towards 2021 and, and what that's likely to bring. And, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of negativity about a potential second wave here in the U.S. and you have seen cases move up 12% week over week here recently. Um, obviously, initial jobless claims look to be higher than where you, you typically would expect them to be. 
But looking forward to next year, you know, we're likely going to have a number of different vaccines that are in commercialization. And as people get inoculated, you know, business and consumer confidence is going to start to rise. And the personal savings rate right now in the U.S. is at 14.1%. That's the highest uh, that we've seen since the mid-1970s. And there's a very strong possibility that when the economy gets back to some sort of normalization, that you're going to have some revenge spending or deferred gratification, if you will, that's going to drive economic growth above the long-term averages. So, you know, I, I think the market is, is rightfully sniffing out that given the lack of structural imbalances as we went into this recession with COVID, um, that we likely could see a much different recovery and more importantly, a, a quicker recovery than what we saw during the great financial crisis. You mentioned that uh, that the market is a leading indicator, and it certainly has been rallying since March. So critics and skeptics of this bull market are saying, yeah, it's way ahead of itself. What? What? How do you answer uh, that concern? The markets are always going to look expensive off the troughs, right? Because PEs are going to yep. move higher before earnings actually move higher. And then obviously earnings catch up and PEs come down. But if you think about the S&P 500 specifically, it's, it's important to remember that you don't want to look at the S&P 500 and think it's static. The S&P 500 in 2020 is different than the S&P 500 in 1980, 1950, and so forth. And the reason why I say that is the cyclicality that's embedded in the index. Um, so what we did is we looked at the S&P 500 over the last 100 years, and we bracketed all the cyclical sectors, financials, industrials, materials, and energy. Usually these sectors move along with the economy. There's a lot of variability in their earnings and they're usually rewarded lower PEs because of that variability. And then we looked at all the growth, stability and defensive sectors, which is basically everything else in the index. Uh, these are types of companies and, that are in sectors that are awarded with higher PEs because they have moats around their business. They have a lot of visibility into their cash flows or they have a growth rate that's a lot higher than the market overall. And as we stand today, this is the highest representation of those growth, stability, and defensive metrics. Um, and right now, they make up 77% of the S&P 500. So if you think about the long-term average of the S&P 500 is 16, given the lack of cyclicality that the S&P 500 has today, maybe you know fair value for the S&P 500 is 18 or 19. And if you couple that on the fact that 10-year treasuries are at 70 basis points, the discount rate that you're going to use to value stocks makes them even more valuable. And so maybe, you know, fair value is 20 or 21. It's, it's hard to say. But again, at forward PE at 22, people are comparing this to the dot-com bubble. But the discount rate during the dot-com bubble, the 10-year treasury was 6% back then. Again, we're, we're less than 1% today. So uh, I think the markets, quite frankly, are, are just anticipating better earnings growth ahead. And it's a reflection of that lack of cyclicality and the low-rate environment that we find ourselves in. You know, you mentioned the cyclical sector and, and the representation of that as a percentage of the S&P 500 uh, is at a hundred year low. Now, if, if I were a value investor and I know you, you've got both value and growth investors and, and funds at Clearbridge, but I would be saying, wow, uh, there must be opportunities in cyclical. So what's the outlook for cyclicals and, and what are the opportunities? Well, I think there is an opportunity in cyclicals. If you look at all the 15 plus percent drawdowns that we've had in the U.S. Um, since the 1980s, 
Um, usually IT, financials, industrials, and consumer discretionary, those are the areas that tend to outperform and the one year following those drawdowns. So it's a little bit of mixture. It's a little bit of value as well. But what I really think can give a nice tailwind to cyclical uh, areas of the economy is if we get a democratic sweep. If we get a democratic sweep, you're likely going to see a, uh, con- a package, a fiscal package, somewhere in the proportional range of the HEROES Act that the House Democrats have been talking about over the last couple of months, which would be anywhere from 2 to $2.5 trillion. That would be a huge injection of money into the U.S. economy, which we could really goose growth in the near term. But even if you don't have a democratic sweep and you, you have either a Trump victory or a Biden victory with a divided Congress, you'll probably get some fiscal stimulus, but really looking out on the horizon with a vaccine, with a renormalization of the economy, revenge spending, and what I call the macro trifecta, uh, which helps boost consumers and businesses, uh, their profitability, which is lower rates, a weaker dollar, and reduced energy costs. Um, all of those have historically been key ingredients for a robust economic recovery. So I think you will see uh, an outperformance of the cyclical parts of the market. Um, it may be brought up a little bit quicker because of fiscal stimulus or even absent that. Uh, I think once we get to the first quarter, um, people are going to start to sniff out that 2021's economic growth could surprise to the upside. One of the concerns as well about the stock market is what's been called the narrow leadership uh, with the fangs, you know, plus M plus Microsoft. And the fact uh, that they have uh, basically comprised over 20% of the S&P 500 market cap. Of course, those tech stocks are part of your kind of low volatility, um, you know, growth uh, and defensive stocks that you were just talking about that are at such a high percentage of the S&P 500 right now. What about that tech dominance in the market? Is that a concern? It's not a concern to me. I mean, if you look at the top 1% of largest companies and uh, indices, yes, we're at 22.6% in the US, but if you look at Korea or China or Japan, these top 1%ers actually make up a larger proportion of that index. But the reason why I'm not concerned versus now, like compared to the dot-com darlings in 2000, is, you know, these FANG stocks are genuinely making money. Uh, the top five largest stocks right now are expected to make 15% of 2021's earnings. Um, so again, they're not just ideas. Uh, they are really well-run business models that are generating a lot of free cash flow, and they're moving into other industries and taking market share. But um, even if you do see Fang M struggle um, with a reacceleration of economic growth and this move over to more of the cyclical parts of the market, um, I think the market can still continue to grind higher. Um, but, you know, you're going to see a, a, a move internally within the market where maybe the FANG M stocks don't go up as much and they don't have that leadership, but it does transition to some of the more harder hits that you parts of the market that you've seen here recently. Is this a new secular bull market and, and secular being long term, durable, sustainable? I, I do, actually. Yeah. The, if you look throughout U.S. history, uh, markets have gone through a 10 to 20 year period where they've gone nowhere. Um, but they've always been followed by 20-year periods where the market goes up substantially. So if you think about the 30s and 40s, pretty nasty secular bear market back then. Cumulative return during those two decades was negative 22%. But that gave rise to the secular bull of the 50s and 60s, where your cumulative return jumped up to 451%. Of course, after that, followed the secular bear of the inflationary 70s. Your return was roughly flat that decade, followed by the secular bull of the 80s and 90s, where the S&P 500 returned 1,260%. And it has been my view, and it continues to be my view, 
that we exited the secular bear of the 2000s and we're now in year 10 of a 20 year period where the market generally has outsized equity returns. And everybody always asks, what's really going to drive this secular bull market in the US? And I think the answer is pretty clear is that I think investors are going to increasingly move towards dividend paying equities to not only get higher income, but growth on income, given the low interest rate environment that we have here. And also, I think uh, policymakers are deathly afraid of Japanese style deflation, and they're going to do whatever they can in order to avoid that fate. And then and you also have fiscal stimulus coming into the fray now in tandem with monetary stimulus every time that we get into a recession. So all in all, this is generally speaking going to be good for asset prices and equities in particular. So Jeff, you think we're in the 10th year really of a, a secular bull market, which obviously started in 2009? Yeah, 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 I think we're right smack in the middle of it. So, so we had a pandemic bear market that was the shortest bear market in history. So, so I guess in technical terms, it you know, it was a what a bear within yeah, a bull if you, market. If you look at these secular bear and secular bull markets, usually the drawdowns that you see on a secular bear, they're much deeper and longer. So the average drawdown that you see in a secular bear is negative 46%. The average drawdown that you see in a secular bull is usually 25%. So they tend to be shallower and uh, the recoveries are much quicker. What are you recommending clients do uh, with the stock portions of their portfolios at this point? Yeah, we want to make sure that, uh, you know, they're still exposed to, to U.S. equities. Uh, I, I, again, I still think the U.S. is, is going to be a leader um, from a global perspective um, within equities. I obviously move towards some areas of your portfolio that have some more cyclicality in it in anticipation of either a stimulus package from Congress, but, but also higher economic growth in 2021 as we get to some semblance of, of normalization. And one thing I'll maybe mention here is that if you look at the average market return during an economic expansion. So not from the market trough after recession, but from the when the economic expansion begins through to the start of the next recession. On average, your returns in equities is 96%. But if you're in those secular bull markets, you have another 149% of upside. And I believe that this expansion started on July 1st, which means um, we're going to have a lot longer or a lot higher to move over the next couple of years. What about bond allocations? What's Clearbridge saying about the bond portion of your portfolio? Yes, we typically focus more on the equity side of the equation. But again, given where sovereign rates are, 10-year treasury rates are, are at the moment, and the possibility that the Fed could tweak their QE program, um, they've been focusing primarily on the short end of the curve. Um, but what they can do uh, in order to help stimulate growth is focus more on the long end of the curve or the 10-year treasury in order to keep rates low and to help goose the economic growth. Um, so if they do that, um, that's obviously going to be tough for sovereign bond investors. But I, I do think it makes sense, just given that we're early on in this expansion, to really look at credits, uh, you know, uh, investment-grade corporates and then high-yield corporates at this point as the economy continues to get, to get better. What could derail the economic expansion, this uh, new economic expansion well, that you're talking about? you know, about? I wouldn't say Congress not getting a fiscal package at all um, would be a mistake. It would be a huge policy error, right, because you still need to shore up state finances. I think you still need to continue enhancing unemployment benefits. I, I do genuinely believe that you need to reopen the Paycheck Protection Program and offer grants, not loans. So forgivable grants to a lot of these industries that are hardest hit like hospitality and leisure. 
Um, I do think that we need that. I, I don't think the economy will go into a double dip recession without it, but I, I certainly think it would help given where we are at the moment. Um, but the other thing that maybe keeps me up at night is a second wave that has that brings along with it a higher mortality rate. And the reason why I say that, even though you see mortality rates stay lower during the wave that we saw in the summer here in the U.S. and also in Europe, if you look at the southern hemisphere, they've been going through their winter and you had three countries that had a huge increase of not only cases, but deaths as well, which is South Africa, Argentina and Australia. Um, I'm not sure if COVID reacts with the winter environment, it increases the mortality rate of uh, people that get that or their idiosyncratic issues of those particular countries. I would lean to say that their idiosyncratic issues like maybe a poor healthcare system or a relaxed attitude towards protecting older individuals. Um, but again, that's something that I'm looking out for. Yeah, it's not necessarily the rise in cases, but the mortality rate that we see in the U.S. It's interesting that you're saying that we really need a lot more uh, fiscal stimulus. Obviously, we're getting monetary stimulus. That's kind of in the can. And Jerome Paul Powell has certainly said that. But uh, if, if the economy, it, which looks incredibly robust, and, and I also might add that there was a recent figure, I think, from the Census Department that new business formation, I mean, just surged almost to record levels. So this concept of creative destruction uh, in a you know capitalist economy uh, seems to be very much uh, in uh, in evidence. But you're saying without even more fiscal stimulus that this economy uh, could be in jeopardy. So that that tells me that the fundamentals are really maybe not as strong as one would think. I, I think the economy would slow. Um, I, I don't think, I, I wouldn't call it stall speed, but it certainly would be a speed uh -huh. where you see GDP growth, I call it one or one and a half percent, um, rather than somewhere higher at two and a half to three. Um, it's a big difference. It's a big difference. Right. It may feel like we're, we're going mm -hmm. into a recession, but uh, you know, I, I think we have enough momentum and, and we've achieved escape velocity at this point to not have a double dip. But you know, the reason why I, I think Congress needs to do another fiscal package is it's akin to playing a poker hand. And you put 85% of your chips in on one hand and you don't throw the last 15% in to, to try to win the pot. And obviously, given all the stimulus that we've seen from monetary and fiscal figures, um, I think a re-up of a fiscal package is, 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 is something that is necessary at the moment. But again, I, I don't think the economy would go into a recession because of it. I just think it will just slow growth from the, the rate that we're seeing currently. Right. And do the same forces come into play and what keeps you up at night as far as what could derail the secular bull market? No, the secular bull market, I, I think, is alive and well, even if we go through a, a bit of a slow patch here or we have a second outbreak of COVID uh, that turns out to have a higher mortality rate along with it. Um, again, we're in a low interest rate environment. Um, there weren't any structural issues with the U.S. economy as we went into this, this slowdown. Um, if you look at, again, a uh, number of uh, different labor statistics, I, I look at job openings right now. I mean, job openings are at 2018 levels, uh, which means there's ample opportunities for the labor market to heal a lot quicker this time than what we saw during the great financial crisis. And if you look at job openings for the entire beginning of the series, which goes back to 2001, we're at levels higher than any other time except for 2018 and 2019. Quit levels are at 2016 levels, so people aren't afraid to leave their jobs. So if you put this in tandem, even if some of these things come to fruition that I've talked about that kind of keep me up at night, 
I still see a, a, a economy and a labor market that are going to strengthen strengthen much faster than what we saw during the the great financial crisis, which would help propel this secular bull market. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio, which is the question we always ask our WealthTrack guests, what would you have us own some of in a diversified portfolio? I'm going to say, obviously, given all of my comments today and, and the, at the, my belief of the secular bull market, I think you want to maintain your U.S. equity exposure. Um, I think U.S. equities are going to continue to be a leadership leader um, globally, um, just given the composition of the index that we have. Uh, and the health of the economy that we had going into COVID and, and coming out of it. I, I think U.S. equities is, is going to be a place that you, you want to maintain that exposure. Within equities, maybe you have a little bit more cyclicality or a little bit more of a cyclical bend, which would be smaller caps over, over larger caps. I was just going to ask, the small caps have certainly lagged the large caps. Do you think there are opportunities in this it's smaller companies. Sector. Absolutely. Whenever you have a, an acceleration of economic growth, um, small caps tend to lead large caps. Cyclicals tend to outperform defensives. Um, and so, yeah, I think, you know, given the leadership that we've seen with mega caps and large cap companies in general, I think small caps are going to lead over the next 12 months. Value versus growth? I think it's going to be a closer race uh, than what people think. Um, I know growth has uh, outperformed by a dramatic uh, amount over the last 12 months. Um, but I would say at the margin, probably value is going to do better than growth, but it's not going to be by a wide margin, given the fact that I am high on the prospects of information technology still. All right, Jeff Schulze, thank you so much for joining us from ClearBridge Investments. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you, our listeners as well. If you're interested, we will have a copy of ClearBridge's recovery dashboard chart on WealthTrack.com. Please continue to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Make the week ahead a healthy, profitable, and productive one.